Hi folks, Ryan here. You're listening to Week Notes by Unstill. You may have noticed a gap in transmission last week. It turns out that I find recording and editing a podcast every week whilst continuing to do a full-time job pretty difficult. This week I've gone back to a recording from one of January's episodes. You're about to hear the second half of the conversation I had with Emma and Owen. It's mostly a single topic conversation, sparked by a link we shared on our internal Slack about queuing theory. I'll add the link to the show notes for you to read yourself. Let's get straight to it. The statistics one. I did this afternoon go back to that queuing problem and I think I can recap that quickly. So if you've got one teller in a bank who can deal with one person every 10 minutes and you get people who arrive at a little bit longer than once every 10 minutes, so like say 10 minutes and 30 seconds, counterintuitively, five hours of waiting time on average for anybody that's in that queue. I downloaded our studio and a library and ran a simulation on it to verify that actually that assertion was correct and it turns out that it is and I don't really understand it. Yeah, it's kind of bizarre, it's very counterintuitive. So the, the customers are arriving at a rate slightly slower than the bank can deal with. So in, in theory you would think, well the bank can keep on top of the rate that these customers are coming in. Obviously the first customer to walk in the door in the morning is dealt with straight away. But if it runs until it reaches a state where uh, customers are being dealt with as they're coming in, then the queuing time is like five hours or something. Yeah. Yeah, it's a crazy one. It is. It's totally mental. Emma, you were a maths teacher, weren't you, before being a software developer? I mean, I didn't do a lot of statistics in uni because I kind of don't like them. And so I didn't teach them much either. But because it's like a real world situation, to try to apply linear or like a mathematical theory to it, it's like, no, because it's too much random in it that I'm like, no, don't like it. (laughs) (laughs) I suspect it's the randomness actually that makes it so weird. So if everybody turns up on the button 10 minutes and 30 seconds apart, then the teller can deal with them perfectly and everybody just has a zero queuing time. But if you're a long way off the average, so if you arrive two minutes after the previous person, then you've got to wait for 20 minutes. And in that time, another three people might turn up. I think that's what makes the queuing system weird, that there's zero slack in it. Yeah, so the randomness is is what can actually cause it to balloon out of it. But then I guess when you bring that back to real life, like we can add randomness to an algorithm, but then we can say that there's no such thing as true randomness. So if we've you know, got an actual bank with customers coming in, there'll be lulls and be based on morning times, lunch times, break times, people leaving the office or whatever. So I guess that the lessons of it could be directed towards a server dealing with requests. So what's the capacity of your server? And I guess in that case, it is a higher workload so that things do, they will reach that steady state. They've got more chance to reach that steady state and it's more realistic that that will happen. Yeah, so I guess the question is, as a software developer, do you need to know all of these statistical things to figure out how many servers you need for your application? Or do you just say to Amazon, you solve that problem for me? Good question. Yeah, you can always use the auto-scaling, which is quite nice. That's what we, we use in our product. If it's getting heavy and it's working hard, just pop up another one off you. And then once it's finished, wait till it's done and just close it down again, you know, so it's obviously very practical like that. But just talking about queues, we have we do have a queue that takes in dealing with our files, let's say. And so if you get a really big file, that we only have one queue, and so that's going to take a long time. But then somebody comes in and wants something quick, 
but you have to wait for that big beast to finish before you can get the quick thing. So then we talked about actually making another queue. So a bit like the bank, having a second teller would really lower, well, you think it would half it, but obviously in the theory is actually that it's 93% better, which is mind-blowing. But what we had thought is we could be even smarter because obviously with tech, we can be smarter than humans. And actually, if we know it's a big file, send it to this queue, don't care about it. And if we know it's small, send it to this queue, get it done quick. And so that was kind of our thinking that we could do that as well. I think it can be a theory we can use and implement in our own products. And I guess it could be one of those theories that it could be helpful to know about it. You don't need to know the models. You don't need to be able to run off to Python and prove it. But if the thing comes up where, you know, we've got this server that can deal with processing files at this rate, and we know that on average the files come in at this rate, slightly slower. So you might put your finger in there and go, yeah, this looks good. This should be fine. And so if you have a wee bit of background in this type of thing, you wouldn't do that. And you wouldn't be surprised when it, when, you know, when it's taking hours and hours to process your files. You know, so maybe without knowing all the theory behind it, that's for the Amazon engineers. That's for the library implementers. Yeah, true. If you were to apply a serverless mindset to that queue, would you actually just spin up a queue on demand? We don't have one queue. We've got as many queues as we need. And we're just going to throw things in and let the Lambda functions just scale to accommodate the number of items in our queue. Is that a sensible approach? So I was actually speaking to someone about this. So there's the idea of infrastructure as a service, software as a service. And I was saying that it's all a continuum. It's not like you go full software service or, or whatever it is. So you could just you know rent out a server somewhere and just use it. Or you can go full serverless. But you always need to have some understanding of what's happening. So if you bring up a Lambda, it's warm. It'll respond to queries more quickly after that when it is warm. And you know that. It's like any type of program. It always helps to know a wee bit about the layer above and the layer below. Because it's, it's maybe never a case that we just say we'll have a Lambda per request that doesn't actually happen in reality. Depends on the domain too, but it could be more cost effective to have a server running. And when the queue hits a certain point, spin up another server, and when the queue goes below that point, take away that server. That might work for one application. For another application, it could be a case of, well, the extreme example is just let it fire up uh, a serverless per request and deal with them one at a time, but you you probably would never really want to do that. So I think it's an understanding of the domain, and when we're talking here, it's hypothetical, and then an understanding of the underlying technologies and an understanding of the difference between whatever it is, ECS or some sort of auto-scaling technology, and AWS Lambda is another example, or running up your own containers and, and sort of running those up manually or whatever it is. Yeah, I think a lot of developers like to focus on the code. I think a lot of people like to come into work and sit down and pop up their IDE and start writing their Java or their Kotlin and not think about that sort of stuff. But actually, the way you're describing it, you need to be thinking about that stuff all the time. You can't write code without thinking about how you're going to deploy it. I guess someone needs to. We are software engineers we like to write code and when it's in code we, we can understand it and we can feel comfortable so it can be quite comfortable for us to lean towards creating a monolith because now we've got this service and we can see all the files and then the folder structure to the left hand side or whatever it is and we know where everything is whereas when you go into a more serverless world okay now you're using a queue you've got some sort of retry mechanism you've got somewhere for dead letters you've got a serverless technology to pick up items off that queue. You've got event streams. It's it's much harder to grasp everything. 
But I think because it's comfortable to work on the monolith, you can lean towards that, but that doesn't necessarily mean it'll be a better solution. The serverless solution might be more difficult to grasp, but as long as you understand all the bits in isolation, and then you understand how they connect together, you, you can get a more resilient solution and a more scalable solution. So forget about that discomfort of not being able to grasp everything in the one place and just kind of to embrace that, I guess. Because with either solution, you don't make the complexity go away. You may feel more comfortable with the monolith, but you haven't made the complexity go away. You just have it in a place where you feel like you can grasp it. Testing's just so much harder as well, though. If you've got a lot of serverless stuff, like you said, it's all a bit here and there. Whereas when you just have it all there and it's just sitting, like you said, to your left, it just makes sense. Yeah, I can really, really sympathize with that. And that is probably one of my biggest criticisms of the whole serverless advocacy, especially earlier on, is that, yeah, you can do these things. You can create a service, you can deploy it, it can be resilient and scalable. But in reality, we have to write tests for all of this stuff. And testing is an afterthought. And AD integration is an afterthought. Refactoring is maybe an afterthought. So it's great if you're an advocate and you're going out and spend two days, you know, preaching about these things and firing up your hello words. But when you get down to it day to day, and then week to week, and now you've been using it for, you know, four months, six months. These are the things, like the everyday things, like writing tests, dinner, refactor, those are the things that are really difficult. And yeah, they, I think they were definitely lacking a couple of years ago. They're, I think they're better now, but they're still, there's probably still a way to go. We're quite into serverless in the current project, and we're writing quite a bit of boilerplate in order to get tests to work, to get local development to work, you know, Sometimes I say I want to fire up the front end and the back end. I want it all local so they can have breakpoints in the back end. And then, you know, the, the response is always, well, you know how you want your API to behave. So you can write a test for any type of scenario. You know, if you're going to click a drop down on your front end, it's going to make a call to the back end. You can write an integration test that has that payload that hits your back end. And then you can run that locally and debug there. And I think that makes sense. And initially, I found it difficult to argue with that argument to sort of argue back but having worked on this day to day I really find that like a good example is you're doing a code review on someone's code and you want to see what they're up to the easiest way to do that sometimes is to check out their code but if you're in a serverless thing you need to check out their code and deploy it and that's like what is that 10-15 minutes or maybe you want to jump back through your history to see when a regression came in and again you can't do that easily if you need to jump to a commit deploy it okay, try the next commit, deploy it. That's not a realistic thing. So this thing about running locally, it's, it's kind of easy to hand wave it away. But I think when you're doing this day to day, it's it's a very important thing. It's a very important part of development. Yeah, I know Amazon have a cloud-based IDE, which I have not looked at. And I know like GitHub and, and that are now rolling out Visual Studio code in the cloud and all that sort of stuff. Do you think that potentially is the solution that we actually get to the point where we're not actually developing locally at all? So that that running containers on our developer machines doesn't happen anymore and we do everything on the cloud. So we're back to thin clients and everything's just a terminal that connects into the the mainframe that Amazon are hosting for us. I, I think it could be one of those things that the blurb sounds good. In practice, it might be good someday, but it's it's not there today. Again, I'm thinking a lot of these things can sound good, but when you get down to the day-to-day tasks that all developers do, I want to check out someone's branch and run it up and see what's happening. I want to hit breakpoints on it. I want to go back through, find a regression. I want to flick through the Git commits. You know, can you do that easily? Can you do that as easily as if I'm just running up 
you know, spring boot uh, locally. I think, yeah, those things can sound good in the blurb, and then in reality, they might do the 80% for 20% of the effort, but they, they need that last 20% that makes day-to-day development a better experience. Yeah, so the, the demos work really well. The Hello Worlds are amazing. The demos work really well. Yeah, I've, I've described this in the past as like, if you've ever been in a car garage and you've, you open the door of the car and then you close it, it just sounds great. It's just one of the best noises, the noise of a car door closing inside a car garage indoors. And so they really put a lot of effort into that. It doesn't say anything about how the car is going to perform in any useful function for the rest of its life. But it's 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 actually a pretty important thing and it can sell the car. So yeah, I think that's the analogy I use for a lot of and I'm gonna I'm gonna single out AWS. I think they could be the most guilty here. And if you read the front page on any of their services, it's like it's just gonna cure all your problems. Yeah, but it doesn't. Gives you more. We could really follow too much of a serverless structure because the product we're designing has to also work on Prime. And so we had to sort of steer away from going too fancy on the serverless side. So you can't make me glad glad of that in the end. At first I was like, oh, this is so annoying. <laughs> Thinking about two things always, that you have S3 or on-prem basically, where the file's going to be. And so and it's kind of annoying on the surface, but now thinking about it, maybe it's a better thing. Yeah, but and I would say like overall, we there, there were problems, but hopefully we've got solutions that are, that are you know, they're pretty good and we're getting into this where it is pretty good. And then we're getting the benefits of serverless as well. So it's always, it's that thing of like, if you're an early adopter, you're also kind of a guinea pig. <laughs> you do start to gain the benefits, but you might have to go through a bit of pain too. I don't want to sound too down on it because then, you know, the client can listen to this and go, we were told this is all great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it is awesome. The idea of like paper request and the ability to just go, I need something, I can reach out and grab it. That is amazing. But it doesn't make the amount of work that we have to do any less. The work is different, but it's not it's not less easy. It still requires a lot of focus and time from a developer. So, you know, the paper request might result in lower infrastructure costs, but your development costs, I presume, are still as significant. Uh, yeah, and, and that's that's the debate, right? So you can easily look at it and say, well, it takes you a bit longer to set that up. And, you know, you're trying this technology that's not as mature. So that's costs more development time. But then the, the flip side is, we're not worrying about infrastructure. We're not paying for operations. And we don't have to worry about deployments. There's so many things that the serverless infrastructure that can be taken out of your hands. So a lot of it's like, yeah, you don't see the problems um, that you don't have. So, yeah, it's it's, it's a difficult yeah. one to figure out. But I think overall, yeah, we're that's the way it's going, right? That's the way we're going towards serverless. Thanks for listening, everyone. Join me next week for a discussion about side projects with Instills 2 Matthews.